Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. And a very pleasant good evening to you. Welcome to That's Truth. It's a pleasure to have you joining us here on The Lighthouse. I do trust that you'll be able to stay with us for the entire program. I do trust that you will benefit spiritually as you listen to the answers to these questions that Pastor Murphy will be sharing with you. We have two very important topics to be dealt with tonight. The first one is... What is and is not salvation? And the other is how to choose a church. Very pleasant good evening to you, Pastor Murphy. It's good to be back on another That's Truth. I do trust that we'll really bring some real spiritual truths to our listeners as we deal with this topic tonight. Pastor Murphy, off we go with our first question tonight. And the question is, could you give us a biblical definition of what salvation is? In its simplest form, salvation is fundamentally a gift that God offers to the sinner when he puts his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He offers forgiveness and he offers eternal life. That in gist is what salvation is all about. Pastor Murphy, we know that salvation is an act performed by God. But could you explain to the listeners what is the process or how does a person obtain God's salvation? I think it's important uh, in dealing with the subject to understand that there are four persons involved in every act of salvation. There are four major actors uh, in salvation. Of course, there's a sinner. and No man is a candidate for salvation who doesn't come to the point of recognizing that he needs forgiveness and pardon and he needs to restore a right relationship with God. Uh, there's also the Holy Spirit, uh, who is the convictor. Uh, the Holy Spirit has to work in a person's life to bring that person to the point where they see the need of, of Christ. And then, of course, there is the Father, uh, who initiates salvation, <coughs> and who is the adopter of the one who puts his faith and trust in Christ and brings him within the family of God. And fourthly, there's Christ. There's no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. For a person to be saved, they have to be willing to exercise their faith in Christ's finished work. So there's a sinner uh, who has to come under the conviction of sin by the Holy Spirit. There's the Father who draws the sinner and initiates the act of salvation and then adopts that person into his family. And of course, there's Christ who is his Savior. So those are the four major actors uh, in this matter of salvation. 
you know, there are folks who claim to be saved. But when you really examine their lives, the way they live, it doesn't really um, outwardly show that that person is born again. Could you um, give us some visible proof of fruits that shows that somebody is really born again? Well, I think the scriptures are fairly clear in regards to this matter. If a person is truly saved and truly born into God's family, there has to be a radical change in that person's life. The biblical term uh, for this is that we are made new creatures in Christ. So we should be seeing in a person who is saved a completely different lifestyle. Uh, Paul uh, reminds us that all things are becoming new and that uh, being new creatures in Christ we're supposed to be displaying or manifesting, should I say, the fruits of the Spirit. And those are given in Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, um, goodness, faith, etc. So there must be some change in a person's life in terms of their lifestyle, their thinking, their conduct, their behavior. Um, I would even go so far as to say that there be changes in terms of the person's associations, the person's friendships, um, there has to be this kind of transformation. Now, of course, there has to be an obedience to God, and that involves a submission to Scripture and trying to live according to God's Word. There's no such thing as a person who is a true, genuine, authentic believer who has no desire for holiness, no desire for righteousness, no desire to be obedient to Scripture. Uh, a person who makes that kind of profession and has those and does not have those kind of desires, this person is sadly mistaken, deceived and misled. So I think it's important to stress that as long as a person is genuinely saved and converted, there will be transformation in that person's life and there will be genuine change manifested in his lifestyle. You know, the Bible said <coughs> if any man be in Christ a new creature. He's a new creature. Yeah. All things are passed away way. and all things are become new. So there should be some change in that person's lifestyle. And another thing I believe too, Jesus said in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 31 and 30, you will continue in my word. So that person will have a love for the word of God and continue in fellowship and staying in the, with the word of God. Exactly. That's why I suggested to you that the, the person becomes obedient uh, the scripture and a desire for holiness um, that clearly is part of that matter of continuing in him uh, salvation is not just a, a a snapshot where a person makes a, a decision and it doesn't impact and carry on into his life um, salvation is something that is continuous in a person's life so there should, should be this ongoing transformation that is evident in the life of a person but Erskine I would like to just um mentioned to the audience as well, not only the concept that there are four major actors involved in salvation, but I also think it's important for us to understand, and this would go along with the second question you asked, that uh, there are certain indispensable elements uh, when it comes to a person becoming a Christian. Um, I should have perhaps mentioned this before we dealt with the second question, but there has to be um, repentance that is a crucial element to anyone being saved. No man is ever saved unless he repents. And I think one of the biggest mistakes we make today in our attempt to um, fill the kingdom of God and bring numbers into our churches is that we make the mistake, I believe, of just 
emphasizing that we tell a person, come forward, believe in Jesus Christ. I think what is missing today is the element of repentance, that before a man can truly accept Christ and uh, put his faith and trust in Christ, they must be willing to turn away from their sins. That's what the word repentant means. It's a real change of mind. That's what the word means. So unless a person is willing to forsake his sin, uh, because what did Christ come to save us from? He came to save us from our sins. So it naturally follows that if I'm going to be in the kingdom of God, if I'm going to be a believer, a Christian, it naturally follows that I must understand that when I come to him uh, by faith, I must be willing to deal with the sin problem. Unless I'm willing to... And I think this is a problem with a lot of people. They say they believe. But then you don't see any evidence, basically, that they've turned away from the particular besetting sin that dominated the lies before they put their faith and trust in Christ. And I think that is one of the major mistakes that we make with people. The other thing, of course, is not only repentance, but it has to be faith. And uh, faith uh, is not just a, um, a vacuous, contentless word. Faith always has some element of content in it. Uh, we're not saved. We don't put our faith in faith. And I think that's, again, what a lot of people make the mistake to believe that uh, their, their trust their, uh, is in their faith. They always go back and say, well, I, I exercise faith. When I, when I trusted Christ. But the scriptures emphasize that it's not just your faith in itself exclusively. Faith is a means, but your faith must be placed in something. It must be faith, placed in Christ. In actual fact, there are three elements involved in this, element, this matter of, of, um, of faith. Uh, first of all, there has to be apprehension of the truth. And what I mean by that, nobody can be saved unless they understand some basic, not have some basic knowledge of the gospel, some basic knowledge about what Christ has done for us on the cross. There's no salvation in the absence of some basic knowledge uh, about uh, his work. So for a person to, to have real, genuine faith, there has to be some measure of apprehension, some mental grasp of the gospel. And then secondly, there has to be the acceptance of the gospel. And what I mean by that, I mean the moral acceptance of the gospel where a person says, this is right, this is true, this is God. So there has to be this, not only the apprehension, the at least some basic understanding, some mental grasp of what is being taught, but you must come to the point where you're willing to accept this same message as genuine, authentic, real, true. And then th- thirdly, there has to be the appropriation of that message. And what I mean by that now is the volitional embracing of the message and choosing to put my trust in that message that I've heard. So it's an element, not only the mental element, and a lot of people believe that that's what uh, faith is, just the mental element. But it's more than that. It involves the volitional element now where I embrace that truth that I've come to comprehend and understand, and I make that personally mine and believe in it as the basis on which God deals with me and forgives me. So I really think it's important to understand that uh, we're not saved by putting our faith in faith. We're saved by putting our faith in what Christ did on the cross. That is the basis on which we get get salvation. So then, the basic elements of salvation, you would say, a genuine repentance, turning away from sin, Sin. have a change of mind, and a faith that is in part from God, for the Bible says it's a gift of God, Mm -hmm. and believe with a heart, for the Bible said it's not just, uh, intellectual um, belief, but a heart belief that can bring about that transformation. 
Yeah, I think it's, yeah, I agree with that 100%. But the point I'm emphasizing here, there's no intrinsic value in faith itself. Faith itself does not generate salvation. It is what you put your faith and your trust in. Uh, faith is just a means of uh, grasping what God has provided. And I want people to understand that you have to un- come to the point in life where you, what you're trusting in is not in your faith, whether you had much faith or great faith or little faith. But what, you, what you're trusting in is what Christ did on the cross, that your faith is in his substitutionary death, his vicarious atonement, and his propitiatory sacrifice. That is what you are depending on. Some of us got great faith, some of us got small faith, and some of us might have medium-sized faith. So it's not the size of the faith, but it's the, the faith, it, what you put your faith in, whether you have little faith or much faith or medium-sized faith. It is the object of your faith that puts you in the kingdom of God and makes you a born-again believer. Listen, you can have faith and still not be saved. Because you can have faith in the church, you can have faith in uh, your works, you can have faith in um, um, your baptism, and you can have faith in the fact that you're a nice person, a good, morally right person, but that will never get you into heaven. Is if you, What do you have faith in? What are you depending on? And biblically, you put your faith and trust in the finished work of Christ. If I might elaborate a little bit on this matter, uh, Brother Erskine, I would like to, to, to be very, very careful to draw to the audience's attention that the Bible is very uncompromising that when it comes to this matter of saving faith that you embrace certain truths about Christ. You have to believe certain things about Him in order to be saved. Uh, uh, for example, you must believe that He is the Christ. You must believe that He is the Son of God, uh, you must believe that He is the Lord of the universe. When John wrote in John chapter 20, he says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. In other words, you notice that there's content about Christ. There are substitute Christ, there are uh, Christ that people are preaching that are not the true biblical Christ. So it is important that when a person says, I believe in Christ, that he believes in Jesus, the man Jesus, who was incarnated, that he believes in Christ, the Messiah, the one that God had promised that would come, that he also believes that he is the Son of God, that he is divine and he has deity in himself. And of course, he's the Lord of the universe. I think it's essential to understand that when you're talking about believing in Christ, there is content to that belief about his person, and also you have to believe certain things about his work. You have to believe that Christ lived an impeccable life, that he was totally sinless. You have to believe that this one that lived an impeccable life also is one that died and was buried and was resurrected. There is no salvation in any Jesus who did not die, who was not buried, and who was not resurrected. That is a bogus Jesus. So we have to understand that belief in Christ is far more than using his name as a talisman uh, or some kind of a mantra. It's believing in actual, factual, historical facts about him and his person. And then, of course, it involves believing in his redemptive um, work, that he died of vicarious sacrifice for us, 
that his death was a substitute for us, that he did no sin for himself, but he died in our place. And then he was the propitiatory sacrifice, which simply means that he's our mercy seat. Christ took the entire wrath of God that was due to us on himself. And when he shed his blood, he shed his blood not for himself, but for us. If a person does not hold to the doctrine of Christ, according to Second John chapter 9, whosoever abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. So we had to be very, very careful in, in, in leading people to, to Christ that we understand there is certain content to let them understand who he is, what work he did on our behalf, and what we need to do as a result of putting our faith and trust in that work. I think it is vitally important. There was a day when we might not have need to do this because we were brought up in a Christian background. We understand biblical truth. Uh, we're living in an age now where people are biblically illiterate. They have got the faintest idea about the great doctrines of the faith and understand uh, the doctrine of Christ. So it is becoming increasingly important for us that when we're dealing with people, that we ensure that they fully understand uh, what the Bible teaches about this matter and be very, very clear on this whole matter of the doctrine of Christ. It is essential to salvation. If Christ is not the Son of God, if Christ is not the Messiah, if Christ is not God incarnate, He cannot save you and He cannot save me. Moreover, if Christ did not literally die, if Christ did not literally rise from the dead, there's absolutely no salvation available to us. And I think that we need to emphasize those biblical doctrines in giving people a firm grasp of what biblical salvation is all about. Pastor, the Bible said in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Could you uh, give us a clearer understanding of what true biblical faith is all about? Well, I, I just mentioned that there are three elements involved in faith. The, the mental apprehension of the truth, where you, you must have some basic understanding of what that truth teaches. I mentioned also there's the moral acceptance of it. You, know, you must come to the point where you not only say, I understand what that means, but you morally must make the decision that this is truth. This is actually what God says. And then the third thing I mentioned is that you must appropriate that truth. And what I mean by that is that you must volitionally use your will uh, to, uh, to embrace that truth and make it personally yours. Let me use an illustration to show you what I'm talking about so that there be no doubt as to what, we, what we're referring to here. Uh, I remember some time ago uh, learning of an uh, incident that happened, and I think it um, it really uh, kind of brings this concept of faith. Uh, it crystallizes what we mean by that. Uh, there was a guy who was going to walk across the Niagara Falls by stretching a rope across the Niagara Falls. And, of course, he stretched a rope and he walked across the Niagara Falls. And of course, people are there, they clapped, and they commended him for his bravery and for his skill. And then he turned to one in the audience and asked him, uh, do you believe uh, that I can do this again? And of course, uh, the response was, yes, we believe it, we saw it before, now we can believe it. Uh, do you believe I can get across safely again? And the answer was, of course, you can get across. And then the guy said, if you really believe that, jump on my shoulders and let me take your cross. You see the difference? I can have a mental belief 
that I, that Christ is able to do it. Now, I can have some comprehension as to what He can do for me. But the final step is when I get on His shoulders and I'm willing to put my entire trust in Him to take me across that danger zone onto the other side. And I hope you get, uh, you see the clear difference between a mental apprehension and a belief that somebody is capable and actually uh, completely throwing oneself in that person. And what I mean by volitionally embracing that person and, and that belief and making it yours personally and willing to put your trust uh, in Him is jumping on the shoulders of Christ as He moves across eternity and believing that He takes me from this side to the other side. I think that substantially helps you to differentiate between these different levels of belief. The real saving belief is not the one that says, I see what you can do, and I morally believe you can do it. Real saving belief is when I get on the shoulders, as it were, when I put my trust, complete trust, full trust, and lean and depend upon Him to fulfill exactly the promise that He said He would do in regards to eternal life. I think that's a classic illustration to differentiate between the different elements of what we call saving faith. Pastor, there are those who will say that you can't know that you're saving this life. But the question is, can salvation be a present reality? Well, not only is salvation a present reality, um, it is very, very clear that our, our Lord said that he will give us eternal life. And John says, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Uh, the book of Hebrews says, we are those that believe to the saving of the soul uh, unto eternal life. So we have uh, eternal life. May I just draw to the uh, audience's attention that there are three tenses for salvation. Uh, you go through the Bible. The Bible says, by grace, are you saved? Clearly, that's in the past tense. So we, when we got saved, we got saved from the guilt of sin. We got pardoned from our sin. Uh, there's a sense in which the Bible says that we are being saved. That is present. Uh, that has to do with being saved from the power of sin. And then thirdly, the Bible says the day when we will be saved completely, and that has to do with being saved from the presence of sin. So the, in the Bible, there is a, a sense where the past, present, and future are wrapped up in this whole concept of salvation. But we are already saved eternally. We are already saved from the guilt of our sins. We are already pardoned. But we still have the sin nature. And we are being saved from our sins. This is called biblical sanctification. Where through the Word and through the Holy Spirit, the believer is being daily transformed and breaking the habits of sin and gaining victory over sin. And then finally, we shall be saved where our entire body, soul, and spirit will be saved eternally from the very presence of sin and to be in, to be in the very presence of God. So, uh, a person can know they're saved. If we could not know we're saved, uh, there'd be something wrong with what John says. John said, I've written all these things that you may know that you have eternal life. So we can know we're saved. The question is, see, what happened with a lot of people that they look at themselves after they've made decisions and trusted the Lord, and many, many times they see the deficiencies, they see the errors. Uh, sometimes they, they're backslidden, uh, they've committed uh, sins after they've been saved, then the, the, the accuser of the brethren accuses them of not being saved. If I could be saved, well, how can I have done that? That is a fine art of satanic attack to rob the believer of his joy. What we need to understand is that what saves me is not how good I am, uh, how perfect I am. Again, I repeat, 
What saves me is what I put my faith and trust in. God the Father has accepted the propitiatory sacrifice of his Son on the cross for my sin, present, past, and future. The sin problem for the believer has been solved completely forever. God now deals with me on the system of my my works and has to do with the matter of my rewards. But when it comes to my eternal destiny, my eternal security, that part is already signed, sealed forever. Uh, so some people get confused about this matter. And you will always be robbed of your joy if you think that your salvation depends on the level of Christian life that you're living. And I'm not saying that's not important how well you live and how godly you live. But you must not look to yourself as the basis for your assurance. You must get your faith grounded in Christ's finished work because it's that that has satisfied God. I could never satisfy God and be righteous as God wants me to be. But my goal as a believer, after put my faith and trust in Christ, is to become like Him. And that is where the daily walk of sanctification comes in. But to answer your question, my dear brother, the Bible makes it clear that we can know that we are saved. And we can know we're saved, and it all rests on what we have our faith in. And uh, if you don't have your faith completely and absolutely in the sacrificial work of Christ, His propitiatory sacrifice for us, you will never know the, the, the security and the assurance of uh, having your eternal destiny already sealed and uh, knowing that you are before God, justified, made righteous, and you have a righteous standing before God. Without that, you can never know joy, nor you can never know assurance. Pastor, one time I went visitation, and there was a young man who said that he worshipped nature, and he always see a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he have a relationship with that vision that he saw with the Lord Jesus Christ. Could that be any salvation? Look, I don't know the young man, and I am not going to dispute whether or not he sees things or hears things. There are many bizarre things happening today, and uh, I'm not too sure uh, with the proliferation of the use of drugs and marijuana and crack and cocaine. We've got a lot of crackheads out there who believe everything. So I am not going to dispute whether or not he has seen that. I mean, every major cult group, every major leader... Uh, saw some angel, heard Moroni, or heard Gabriel, or uh, had some kind of a vision. I'm not going to dispute that whatsoever, but I'll tell you this. Uh, you don't worship nature, you worship the God of nature. Nature in itself should lead you to your, your, your faith uh, and your trust in God. Uh, Romans chapter 1 talks about that, that when we look at creation, we see two things about God. We see His eternal power and His Godhead that he is of infinite power, that whoever created what is there uh, have infinite power, and that he must be divine. He must be the supreme one that has done this. So nature should point you to God. Uh, but nature is not enough to lead you to God uh, because it took Christ and his death to bring you into a right relation with God. Nature can only tell you there's a God, but nature can never tell you, how can I reconnect with this God? How can I build a bridge with this God? How can I be reconciled to this God? How can I be forgiven? Nature can never tell you that. Uh, and that is where you not only got the witness of general revelation, this is what we talk about, nature creation. God now has sent His Son down in human form, incarnated His Son, and spoke to us very specifically so that there be no doubt in our minds as to how we get to God and how can we be made right with God. And he himself said that he's the door 
to the Father. He himself said that he's the way to the Father. He himself said that uh, he is the final truth to the Father. And moreover, he himself says that he is the life. So uh, a person can make all kinds of claims that they want to. And they could fall in love with nature and worship butterflies and worship trees and and uh, all this kind of uh, paraphernalia in nature. I'm not going to get the dispute with that. But uh, what I would say to a person is that you can never know the true and the living God and be rightly related to Him outside of Jesus Christ. There is no salvation. There is no redemption. There is no relationship with the Father outside of the Son. And uh, so... I would say to that person, and, and, and uh, the, the comment you made as well, that they see Jesus. Paul says that uh, in the book of Corinthians, that we no longer see Jesus after the flesh. So are you wiser than Paul? Uh, are you wiser than all the great men that have come before you? Uh, there are people who say that they see Mary. Uh, the people who say that they see different saints. You had better be careful that, remember that the Bible says in the book of Corinthians, that Satan and his emissaries uh, can display themselves as light, angels of light. So you have to be very, very careful that who you are seeing, whether that is real or fictional, delusional, uh, what is really important is that you come to know Jesus Christ of the Scriptures and you put your faith and trust in Him and not put your reliance in the fact that you've got a vision or a dream. Uh, it's interesting, by the way, in Peter, Peter, uh, when he was counting the transfiguration, where you remember the story when Moses and Elijah came down to talk to Jesus about his death. And Peter said, we saw his excellent glory. And then Peter said, but we have a more sure word of prophecy. And then he goes on to quote the Old Testament scripture. In other words, Peter is saying that the scripture, uh, in terms of its relevance uh, and giving authenticity to what one believes, is more important even than the experience. I, I was at the Mount of Transfiguration. I saw what happened, but I have a more sure word of prophecy. In other words, the Word of God far exceeds His experience because the Word of God is God's final Word to us. And we can be misled by our experiences and our final trust is not in our experience. Our final trust is in God's Word and what He's revealed. Pastor Murphy, we have a question here from a listener. And here's the question. Go right ahead. What advice would you give to a person who is witnessing to a friend and that friend blatantly say they don't believe in such a thing as salvation. They believe heaven is on earth and this is the only life to live. And after that, there is nothing else. What should I say to convince them otherwise? Let me just say that uh, don't depend on your, your skills and your logic and your ability and uh, your capacity to, to be able to, to prove anything to people. Uh, there has to be this element of faith. And that person, and you, and I, and everybody else who gets saved, we must get saved through faith. And faith can only come from one source. So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Uh, my simple suggestion to you is continuously uh, befriend that person uh, let your lifestyle uh, be a witness uh, let them see that what you really believe is genuine and authentic in terms of the impact it has made on your life listen don't be don't be misled you would be totally surprised that you someone is watching you 
Someone is observing your life. Someone is evaluating your life. Uh, faith within the community of men is vitally important. Faith is not an isolated thing. They need to see it work out in everyday life. So my, my advice to you is to just uh, keep befriending them, keep living the lifestyle, and give them scripture. Uh, see if you can get them to get into the Word of God. Uh, a person like that clearly seemed to be an atheist because if this is all that life is about, he clearly not doesn't believe in God. So you may have to approach the matter from his atheistic or agnostic belief. Uh, I would recommend that there's some very, very good books that you can use. Uh, Norman Geisler is an excellent um, writer, and he has a, a very helpful book on the encyclopedia on um it's a, a biblical encyclopedia and and, and a Bible apologetics that deals with all kinds of situations and all types of persons. Uh if you can find out whether or not the person is an atheist or an agnostic, it may be then that you can provide uh good solid biblical material of for that person to read. Uh but you've got to find out where they're coming from. I mean, saying that there's nothing but this life is, is all that there is, there's nothing beyond that. Seem to be a person who has embraced atheism, person who believe embraced evolution. So if you can find out if he believes in evolution or what it is is the problem there, I think then you can bring to bear upon his his mind um material, uh uh Christian apologetic uh, apologetic material that will deal with that specific matter. Uh, there's another good book that I like to recommend, Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. You might find that that might be helpful in dealing with the person. So I'm not too sure where the person is coming from, but I do think two things are important. Number one, you keep living the Christian life before that person. You keep sharing your faith. You keep periodically dropping uh, scripture, uh, which generates faith. And then if you can see the, 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 the angle that that person is coming from, whether he's an agnostic, an atheist, uh, where he's a skeptic, and then uh, do some good research, uh, get some good Christian books, and uh, see if you'd be prepared to, to look at the material or the arguments that he would bring to you, like take evolution. There's no doubt in my mind what to it, evolution is dead. Uh, most scientists today are moving to what is called intelligent design, even those who are hard. The, the evidence after the unraveling, uh, rattling of the, uh, the DNA molecule has shown scientists that the information uh, in the DNA could never have just happened. It is sequential. It's almost exhaustive. And they have come to the realization that this is, can never be an accident. But the embarrassment is, how do you now come and disclaim your belief in evolution when you have been propounding it for such a long period of time? It's almost an embarrassment to the scientific community. So they keep holding on to this bogus belief. But there's so much evidence today that you can present to a person uh, to deal with that particular subject. So again, I'm not too sure where the person is um, in terms of what they really believe, but you can try to assess that and then perhaps begin to deal with it in terms of providing material and maybe sitting down and and, and, uh, debating and arguing with them. But remember, (coughs) you can't argue a man into the kingdom of God. You can never do that. You can present facts and give a reason for the faith that is in you. But without the Holy Spirit and without the Word of God, that person can never come to saving faith in Christ. So you have to ask the Spirit to be working with you and working through you, and you have to use the instrument of the Word uh, to get to that person's mind and give the Holy Spirit a weapon, which is called the sword of the Spirit, to work on that person's mind to bring about a transformation and a belief in Him. Listen, don't be dismayed. Some of the worst hardened atheists 
have been turned to Christ when the evidence is presented. Uh, and and uh, sometimes you may be able to find one or two books where a person who was a st- uh, staunch atheist became converted and maybe put that in the person's possession and ask them, would you be so kind as to read that? And then we can discuss it. Lots of things you can do, but at least I don't know exactly where the person is. You need to work with them from where they are. Thank you, Pastor Murphy. He, the person also mentioned in the latter part there that there is nothing else. What should I do? There's like there's no life after death. There's nothing else. What should I do? Uh, is that the person asking that, or is he the person asking that? The, the person who seems to be an unbeliever is saying there's nothing after death, etc., etc.? That seems like what he's saying here. Okay. Uh, again, look, look, all you can do with a person like that is to present facts. Um, those of you who know science, the, the laws of thermodynamics, uh, which very clear that you can't destroy anything. So whatever exists would exist in another form. So if you're coming from the, from the logical scientific aspect as well, you might need to bring those kind of arguments. I don't know where the person is scientifically, morally, spiritually, and I think I would, I would need to know that. But again, I would like to repeat, the Word of God is the instrument of faith. It's what the Holy Spirit uses to bring a person to conviction. So share with that person what the Bible teaches about life after death. Uh, show that person that Christ resurrected from the dead. If he has doubt about the resurrection, again, uh, there's so much material that we can perform biblically and non-biblically to, to verify that it's the greatest. By the way, it's the uh, historically, it's the greatest uh, historical fact that can be proved today than any other previous historical fact. The evidence is so overwhelming for Christ's resurrection that the debate is almost over. It's only hardened people who are not prepared to face the evidence today that doubt that. But there's overwhelming evidence uh, that came stand up in courts. By the way, uh, I did a sermon. I think it was a few. It was uh, Easter Sunday. I did a sermon on Christ's resurrection, and I drew the attention to Simon Greenfield, Green, Green, Greenleaf, the great Harvard scholar, legal scholar, master of jurisprudence, who wrote a book on evidences, and uh, he put his legal mind to the evidence about Christ's resurrection and came to the absolute conclusion that it would stand up in any human court and the evidence is incontrovertible. As a matter of fact, he converted to Christianity and he wrote a book called uh, On the uh, the Evidence of the Evangelist. You can go online and get it. Look for Simon Greenleaf and, and see uh, the the fact that the evidence for the resurrection is legally um, overwhelming in terms of proof. And this is a great legal mind that applied all his, his skills uh, to the evidence and came to that conclusion. And there are others as well. Pastor Murphy, just one more question on the issue of salvation sure. before we go into our next topic. And the question is, does water baptism play any part in a person's salvation? L- let me dispel for just very hurriedly, uh, not only water baptism, but let me dispel some other <laughs> things that people... Uh, look, sincerity. People say, well, pass as long as I sincerely hold to this belief and I follow this belief, uh, it's going to get me into heaven. Look, you can be sincerely wrong. You can be sincerely, you can be going in one direction believing you're going to St. John's and you're going the opposite direction. It doesn't matter how sincere you are. 
uh, that's not what's going to get you into the kingdom of God. It is the truth that you believe and the truth that Scripture reveals. So sincerity. Then some people depend on um, their the, the good works. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a good guy. I'm a philanthropist. I, I, I help people. I'm kind to people. I'm morally upright, etc., etc. Not even that will get you into the kingdom of God. Uh, and then others say, well, I'll keep the law. Well, you can't keep the law, sir. I repeat, you can't keep the law. The Bible says, he that offends the law in one point is guilty of all. So to think that you could keep the law as a basis of salvation is a myth. It's a mirage. See? Your faith must not be in your capacity to keep the law. Your faith must be in the finished work of Christ on the cross. So the idea of keeping the law to save you, uh, you'll never get the heavenly basis of keeping the law because you can't keep it. Uh, nobody's ever kept it. There's only one person, one person only who's kept the law, and he kept the law for you. And that is Jesus Christ. And then, of course, the whole matter of baptism. Paul says the Lord did not send me to baptize in the book of Corinthians. Now, how in the world could baptism be um, uh, vital to, to salvation? And Paul said the Lord did not send me. And then Paul said, I thank the Lord I did not baptize you. And then he mentioned only two people he baptized. Baptism is something that follows salvation. After they believe, repent and they believe, then they were baptized. So it is not something that precedes conversion. It's something that follows conversion. And what baptism does, basically, it's a public witness to those out in the world that you have, first of all, like Christ was dead and buried, that you're, you're, you're buried to your old sinful nature. In other words, that you're, you're, you're now, and then you're raised to newness of life. So baptism is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It's also a, a picture of you being cleansed. Uh, you read that in Peter, uh, that you're being cleansed, you, that you're cleansed, not that you're being cleansed by baptism, but it's a symbol of washing, uh, etc. So uh, baptism has nothing to do with salvation. Baptism is a um, a practice. And it, uh, um, it, I wouldn't call it a sacrament. Uh, that's the Catholic term that would use. But it's an ordinance that God has given to the believer that he publicly says to the world when he goes to That's, by the way, why we should invite our friends for a baptism. That's why we should go in a public place when we are being baptized. Because we are saying to those around us, look, I am dead to the old man, and I'm raised to newness of life when I come from the water. So um, it's a... Uh, mistaken belief to ever believe that a person can be saved by baptism. May I say one last thing in this regard? For those of you who may have doubts about this, go into the great book of Romans and read Romans chapter 3 and and chapter 4 where Paul is expounding in great meticulous detail about what salvation is all about. And in those two chapters, you will not find any reference whatsoever to baptism. And Paul is expounding in those two, two, two chapters, in particular, the great glorious doctrine of the salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. And not one mention is of baptism. But we do notice that after we put our faith and trust in Christ, we should be baptized. And I question <coughs> a person who knows they are a Christian and put their faith and trust in Christ, but has no desire to follow the Lord in baptism. It's a matter of being obedient to what the Lord has taught us. We're going to switch gears now. We're going to go into our next question, and that is how to choose a church. And here's a question for you, Pastor Murphy. 
Do you really need to become a member of a local assembly when I'm already a part of the body of Christ? I think it's important to understand that the Christian faith must be lived out in a community of believers. Every single epistle that Paul wrote, uh, whether it be Corinthians or Ephesians or Galatians, he's writing to a local assembly. He's not writing to the universal church. Of course, his message is for the universal church. <clears throat> the principles that he enunci- announces in those passages are for the universal church. But really, in truth and fact, every single epistle that Paul wrote, he's dealing with specific churches in specific locations, geographical locations. I think it's important to understand that you're not supposed to be a lone ranger in the Christian faith. I think it's important to become part of a local assembly. And I can just give you one or two um, things that come to mind. I mean, number one is accountability. Uh, you have to be accountable to somebody, and uh, that is where the local church comes in. Number two, you need encouragement, and you don't, you not only need encouragement; it has to be reciprocal. You need to be able to encourage other people. Number three, you've got to use your talents and the gifts that God has given to you. Every born again believer is endowed with a spiritual gift, at least one spiritual gift. The Bible tells us that. So you have to exercise that gift within the body of Christ, and that is within the local uh, assembly. The other thing is, how are you going to accomplish the biblical mandate to evangelize the world and send missionaries out in the world? How are you going to do that? How does a local church able to do that? Uh, how do we fulfill that mandate without having the resources to do that? And that's where you join a local church. You yourself may not be able to go on the mission field, uh, but you certainly can give towards the mission field, and you can give towards the support of missionaries. So for those four simple reasons alone, I think one can see clearly that one ought to be part of a local assembly. Go into the book of Acts, for example, and you will see that uh, more than once they can tell you how many people were on the role of the church, 2,000, 5,000, 4,000. Someone was holding the count there uh, as far as that is concerned. I see that there might be a question, yes. Yes, Pastor, we have a WhatsApp message here from Antigua from Sevia Farm, and it said, What if I am already saved, and some mishap happened, and I went away from the Lord, and died in that state? Where would I go, heaven or hell? If a person is genuinely saved, and I mean that they put their faith and trust in Christ, and His completed work for us, and His propitiatory sacrifice, if a person is pardoned by Christ, if a person has the, the righteousness of Christ imputed towards that person's account, if that person is in Christ, positionally in Christ, that person is saved. Now, this is, by the way, this is a problem that is uh, going to surface again and again uh, because some people cannot understand that how a person can be a believer, then get away from the Lord, die in sin, how that person can still be saved. Well, the question is this, were you saved by your works before you were saved? If the answer is no, are you now saved by your works after you're saved? Uh, this not, this not, look, this is what God does with a believer. If that person is a genuine believer and he gets away from the Lord, there's a very, um, there's a biblical um, approach to how God deals with a believer. When you get away from the Lord and you're truly a, a, a true saved person, uh, the Lord has to, first of all, convict you of your sin. So he will get some way of convicting of that sin. That would be either you come into the church, the pastor preaches, somebody meet you in the street, another believer, you're reading a newspaper, you're listening to a radio program, you're watching a movie. Something happens, but God will get the message to you that what you're doing is wrong, this conviction. Then this confrontation. He will always bring somebody along your way 
as a child of God to try to pull you back in the right path. Now, if that doesn't happen, so you've got, he's actually convicted you, he's confronted you using some other believer, then the Bible says he does something else. He begins now to chasten you. If you find that you're a Christian and you're away from the Lord, you're a professed Christian and you're away from the Lord, and you're living in sin, and there's no chastening, now, sir, you've got reason to really wonder and reevaluate if you're truly a born-again believer. Uh, because the Bible says that God will chasten his child. If we do not receive chastening, the Bible says, we are illegitimate children. We don't belong to him. So there must be chastening. Any born-again believer living in sin, and there is no divine chastening whatsoever, mark it down. That person is not a genuine, authentic believer. There will be chastening. Now, if God chastens you, and you do not receive the chastening, there's another way that God deals with you. And this is the most severe way. He will sometimes take his hand off your life and let you go to what is called corruption. Find that in uh, Acts, uh, sorry, in Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul told the young man who was living in his stepmother uh, to cast the young man out of the church that his body be destroyed by Satan, but that his spirit be saved in the day of Jesus Christ. So he, he takes his hand out, and then the final thing that God does is that he could cut you off prematurely. There's a sin unto death. So when the believer is convicted and is confronted by God, when the believer is chastened by God, and that believer does not respond, God takes his hand, let him go through a process of corruption, and then finally God says, all right, it's time to take you home prematurely. He's removed. But that person is still saved. Read um, Corinthians chapter 3, when our works are going to be judged. The Bible says our works will be burnt up, but the the person will be saved even though the works are, are burned up. We believe in something called eternal security. And what I mean by that is this. If a person is genuinely saved, that person is saved forever. Jesus said, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never, no, never perish in the Greek language. See? Uh, Paul says, he which, has, uh, he which has begun a good work on you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And remember that that work of performing in your life might involve chastening and might involve cutting off. But if you're a child of God, sir, you're still a child of God. He is chasing you, but you'll lose your reward. Thank you very much, Pastor Murphy. Our time is up, so it's time for us to say goodbye from that student. I want to thank our listeners very much for tuning and also those who have sent in their WhatsApp. We do appreciate you doing so. And we didn't get time to get into our next topic fully, so hopefully next week, God's willing, we'll deal with that topic of how to choose a church. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM, 
If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.